Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. If I can wager a bet, it would be that there isn't a single listener amongst you that isn't already aware of the critical importance of routinely acquiring new knowledge and skills. You certainly know that staying relevant in a world of rapid change is essential to your long-term career success, and continual learning is no longer the ambition of just high achievers. It's really the only mature response to a technological age that's likely to wipe out innumerable occupations in the coming years while birthing just as many new ones. But if you're like me, your time is precious, and the normal demands of work and life free up limited opportunities to specifically invest in your growth. So it surely would be ideal if we could be taught the most optimal ways of learning and could actually maximize our own day-to-day experiences to cultivate the new wisdom and knowledge we all need. So I am pleased to say that our podcast guest today is the author of a new book that Stanford University Business School professor Bob Sutton calls the best ever written on the topic of learning. It's called Never Stop Learning, Stay Relevant, Reinvent Yourself, and Thrive. And it begins with the surprising assertion that most of us are actually supremely bad at learning. How is that, you ask? Well, amongst the many reasons we're about to discuss, it's often because we're unwilling to take risks that might lead to failure. We rush to answer questions rather than ask them. And our need to appear busy in every waking moment prevents us from the reflection and recharging that's proven to be essential for the retention of new information. University of North Carolina Business School professor Brad Stotts devoted the past 15 years to pinning down the most important ways we can all become dynamic learners. And as you're about to hear, it calls for us to change some of our beliefs and behaviors that get in the way of all the growing we desire and need. Impressively, Brad earned his undergraduate degree at the University of Texas before going on to earn both an MBA and a PhD at Harvard University. He recently spent one year as a visiting professor at the Wharton Business School, and we are very, very fortunate to have him joining us here today. And so I say welcome to the podcast, Brad Stotts. Hi, Mark. It's great to be here today. Well, thank you for doing this. And hello from California to North Carolina. And I want to get started here by asking what I think might seem like a really basic question. But can you start things off by telling us why you believe constant learning will be essential for the success of all of our future careers? Sure. I think it's a recognition that we live in a world where really the only constant is change. You know, there are all sorts of factors that are driving that. But I would highlight kind of five that stand out to me that really kind of highlight that we're living in in a learning economy today, not just a knowledge economy. Quickly, we can think about just routinization, the fact that there's so much routine work that we don't even think about anymore that's been taken away, whether that's, you know, things like, you know, agriculture that made up, you know, 65% of uh, the jobs in the mid 1800s to uh, today where it's in, you know, in a place like the U.S., less than 2%. A lot of that is productivity driven when we look at it and we see that routinization across industry after industry, whether it's specialization that we have to get more and more narrow to really provide the expertise to bring to bear. Uh, you know, I love the research that says physicians would need you know over 29 hours a day if they were to read and stay current on the state of the art. Uh, and that 29 figure is obviously a bit of a challenge given there are only 24 actual hours to things like you know globalization that we're competing across the world to uh, 
digitization, the fact that we can take so many things, turn it into bits and bytes, and then send it, compute it. And then finally, just integration. We have to put it all back together. And so what that means is that we can't just be knowledge workers anymore. We really have to be learning workers. I love that. One of the things that stood out to me that I guess you have to get old to reflect on is to realize that according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, from 1978 to 2012, they found that the average worker held 12 different jobs. So I got to believe that that's an accelerating number now, isn't it? It certainly seems like it. What's interesting is it's hard to get good data on the number of jobs folks hold. But uh, at least from what I've been able to take a look at, it does seem to be increasing. And part of the challenge, right, is that we know in today's economy, a lot of people don't have what we would have thought of as you know a traditional job 20 years ago. That, uh, you know, kind of the sharing or the gig economy means, you know, many more of us are, you know, interacting as freelancers, are going from, you know, kind of job to job. Job, not just as an Uber driver, but you know, kind of at the top of the stack as well. Pick your most knowledge-intensive work of a programmer or medical expert, etc., that are functioning that way. And so, I think what's great about that is it offers some real opportunity and some flexibility. The challenging part is back to that dynamism. We have to be able to adapt and evolve with things. So, learning is about being versatile. Is that really where you're you're anchoring down on? Yeah, no, I think that is a true statement if one takes the long view. You know, in, in the book, talk a bit about the idea of being a T-shaped learner. And so really they're capturing the idea that, you know, we need breadth, we need to be able to adapt and see where things take us because we don't know what, you know, fill-in-the-blank industry is going to look like a decade from now. That doesn't mean being a jack-of-all-trade, master of none. That, you know, kind of when we talk about T-shaped learning, the, you know, the horizontal part of the T captures the breadth, but the vertical piece there is saying, hey, you've, you've got to be good at something, right? That we really need to get in deep to make sure that we can provide value to the task that we're doing right now. So in the short term, that depth matters, but in the longer term, the breadth brings a lot of value to the table. Well, you went someplace that I was intending to go anyway, so we might as well pin this down. And for whatever reason, it strikes me as being an appropriate time to discuss sure. this. You make a very clear point along what you're just talking about, that we really need to be focused on our strengths. And sometimes we think, oh, you know, I've got these things that I really need to fix. And we put disproportionate energy and time into fixing those rather than really elevating our strengths. So speak to that and tell us a little bit more about what the research shows. Yeah, so I think it's interesting, kind of this value of strengths. And I guess I'd, I'd highlight a few things that really seem to matter. You know, one is that strengths are differentiating, that if we think about kind of this overlap with strengths of things that we really care about and things that we're good at, um, then it has a chance to differentiate us. If we look at organizations and we think about kind of giving advice to organizations, we talk about things like a, a core competence or this concept of, you know, an order winner, I'll say sometimes of you know, what is that that you are better than everybody else at and then go and serve your customers and you're going to win more business that way. And strengths are just taking that down to an individual level. How can you excel? Well, you can excel by really playing to those talents. But it's more than that. So it's not just uh, kind of the differentiation. The research also shows how strengths are intrinsically motivating, that uh, kind of that ability to master a task is something that we get excited about, something that we can get lost 
interest in. And so, you know, when we're doing those things we really love, then not only are we excelling for others to see, but, you know, we're able to keep engaged over time. I think then the kind of piece that both of those lead to is that strengths can also create some external motivation because when we achieve goals, then we get recognition from others. And so that's incredibly satisfying as we address that. And so what's so fascinating to me about strengths when we think about them from a learning standpoint is you know, they have a chance to be kind of a true win and they, you as an individual can perform better, you as an individual can learn. And then for organizations, it helps really engage us. We know kind of how frightening the numbers are. You know, pick your favorite poll, Gallup consistently showing, you know, only about a third of workers in the U.S. are engaged. But using our strengths is incredibly meaningful as a way to uh, kind of create satisfaction at work, engage and perform at a higher level. I love that. And Honestly, the next question is going to seem totally out of context, but <laughs> is also probably really appropriate. So here's things that you wrote in the book that all of them sort of made me laugh about the human condition. You said that a survey of one million high schoolers found that 70% of them believe that they had above average leadership skills. 94% of your brethren, professors, say their work is above average, 94%. And in a study at one company, employees on average rated their own performance in the 78th percentile. So we all think mighty highly of ourselves. And so tell us what's the mindset that we need to have to be a great learner. How do we have to lower our self-assessment in order to be open to new ideas and learning? No, it's a great question, right? And I think in some ways this is the paradox of learning, but it's also, I would argue, a paradox of performance more broadly. I mean, I'll, I'll answer the question in a second, but it's probably worth saying, I mean, we desperately want to get to simple answers and mm -hmm. to kind of distill the world down into if only you do one, two, three, then your success is guaranteed. And unfortunately, I think that the deeper we get um, into whether it's the research or whether looking at practice, what we see is kind of those simple rules apply a lot of the time, but not all of the time. And instead, kind of longer term sustained success means dealing with these trade-offs, right? Dealing with kind of, as you were saying, hey, Brad, you just argued we need strengths and that strengths allow us to kind of play out to our best. But you know, it seems like here's a problem of taking it too far. And that's absolutely right that kind of overconfidence can turn strengths into weaknesses. I love this quote I use it in the book from Paracelsus, the Swiss German philosopher, and he's uh, kind of the founder of modern toxicology. He writes, all substances are poison. There is none which is not a poison. The right dose differentiates a poison from a remedy. And so, you know, this is sometimes summarized as, you know, the dose makes the poison, that too much of something, you know, it can actually be problematic. And I think that's what you're capturing with those statistics, that if we want to grow and if we want to learn, then, you know, we need some humility. We need to recognize that however good we are now, there's a need to get better. And the irony is that the research shows us that in some ways, when we are less good, we tend to kind of underestimate our shortcomings. And so often captured with the idea of the Dunning-Kruger effect in the literature, but just saying how, you know, kind of novices or poor performers may miss how bad they are. And so we have to come up with strategies to help us see what's really there. I think fundamentally, a lot of this discussion around learning is that we see what we want to believe. Mm. And so instead, coming up with strategies to more accurately see what's there without terrifying ourselves so much that we're afraid to, to get out of bed in the morning. 
as part of what's driving this, that we all just feel so overwhelmed by time and by the pressures of our day, that it's just easier to say, this is the answer than to be curious and to probe and to ask, you know, what could end up in a very time consuming conversation? Is that part of what's driving it? Or is it our own lack of humility that you just mentioned? I think it's both, right? And it's kind of back to the, as we try to unpack, you know, how do we get better? We have to recognize there are a bunch of these different things that are contributing, right? I think that, you know, on the humility point, I mean, we want to see ourselves in a positive light. That's quite natural and appropriate, but it's it's a recognition that just because we want to see ourselves in that way, we need to avoid kind of lying to ourselves. And we can unpack that a little bit more. I think part of why we sometimes lie to ourselves is this sort of, you know, almost accident that we get so busy, we have so much going on that deep down, yeah, yeah, I know that needs attention, but I don't have time to do that now. I have to jump over to this next thing. And so as we look at learning, you know, there is an element of one of our challenges is this very kind of short-term focus, survive in the moment, survive in the moment. And learning is sometimes inefficient. Sometimes it's wasteful. We don't always know how it's going to turn out. And it's hard in this modern age where all too many of us, often myself included, you have our schedules overly packed to uh, actually take the time to do that. So let me go into your mindset. So obviously a extreme high achiever and someone who's clearly focused on productivity, your own productivity, whether it be writing books or articles or teaching your classes, but you have to build the learning into that. So you are a model for everything we're talking about. So if you have this day where you, you know, sort of devote yourself to learning and you, you're ready to pack up and go home and you realize I haven't really moved the ball forward. Does that distress you on some level or can you, you know, make peace with it because you know, in the big picture that this is really helping you? Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a great comment. I think it's part of why I love being a researcher, that much of my research is me-search. There are questions that kind of bugged me about myself. <laughs> why can't I do better if I'm a supposed expert on this topic? And then digging in and, and understanding some of these flaws that we all face. I think if you were to ask uh, my wife, she would tell you that there are plenty of times that I come home with the classic, you know, I didn't get anything done today as an answer. And then you know, in walking through the day with both of us, we'll say that. That, you know, and we'll talk to the other one and realize, of course, we did lots of things. Mm -hmm. We just didn't necessarily do, you know, kind of one thing that we intended. I think what I've come to appreciate with learning is there's some amount of it that you just have to be intentional, that, you know, you have to block time, take something like reflection, that you have to put it in your calendar and you're going to spend 15 minutes thinking through either the start of the day or the end of the day, you know, kind of what you're going to do or what you did and the implications of that. And so really controlling your calendar is a really big deal. I think the other thing that you know, both my research and others have shown is that, you know, learning on demand doesn't always happen. And so you can say today is going to be a learning day and maybe it is, maybe it isn't in the sense of, you know, I'm going to block this long period of time. Instead, it's appreciating that, you know, we can come up with new ideas often when we least expect it. You know, there's kind of good work around that showing, you know, many of the best ideas, you know, it wasn't somebody who's trying to solve that problem. It, you know, they were thinking about something else. And so, you know, kind of the value of a, of a little bit of inefficiency. I mean, I'm an operations professor. I believe in, you know, kind of optimizing our systems, but knowing that we still, you know, we still need to create some time. And so that's part of the trying to make it a rhythm of 
your regular days rather than, yes, in you know six weeks, I'm going to have half a day for learning. And other than that, I'm just going to crank ahead and try to get stuff done. Great. Glad I asked that question. So the central thesis of your book is that, and this is to use your words, we human beings aren't just bad at learning, we're supremely bad learners, which I think came as a bit of a distress to me and will probably be to much of the people listening to this. I mean, none of us really want to think that we're bad learners. But I think where you're really going with this is to say that if you know what I know and you apply what I know, you could be an infinitely greater learner. So before we get into some of those, give us the big picture. Give us a quick overview of the key ways that you think we currently handicap our own growth and development. Sure, it's a great question. I mean, and, and so I think it gets to this point that, you know, if we're going to succeed today, then we have to learn on a continuous basis. You know, and if we don't, then we risk becoming irrelevant, that kind of we're solving old problems too late, not looking at the ones that are ahead of us that are actually going to determine, you know, our ongoing success and improvement. And so there's this question of, right, why are we our own worst enemies? You know, why do we do the things that are opposite? And I think some of it ties to the point that we were just discussing of how we manage time that you know we get very focused on what is in front of us right now and in obsessing about kind of the current action we miss the bigger picture that hey there may be something that slows this activity down a tiny bit but speeds up every subsequent activity right and so i think time is is a big enemy here but it's not just time, it's perceptions of time. We convince ourselves that I don't have the ability to pull back and do things when and we can get into some of the details. Things like reflection, taking 10 minutes to think about your task, or even taking a 10-minute break and going for a walk, ironically enough, might make your next hour kind of more productive than if you'd spent that whole 70 minutes trying to work through things. So there's a bit of a sometimes we have to go slow in order to go fast. And so it gets to, you know, kind of we've seen talked about in, in various contexts, you know, Daniel Kahneman in, uh, you know, in his great recent book talks about kind of the two systems of decision making, kind of a, a fast, rapid one, and then the slow, methodical one. And it gets back to kind of that challenge that the fast, rapid decision making you know, will kind of point us in a wrong direction sometimes. And so what we have to do is pull back try to understand, and that's what I try to do in the book, of highlighting eight different areas where we're likely to uh, run ourselves into trouble and kind of walk through what should we do, why don't we do it, why do our behavioral tendencies kind of pull us astray, and then how can we go after it in a more productive manner. So pick maybe the top three or four. We're going to get into them, but I'd like the audience to know in advance some of the things that you think really hold us up. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we can take something like failure we'll talk about. And, you know, with failure, we have almost a bias towards success where we're so consumed about getting the activity in front of us right now done correctly that we miss the chance to try new things. And, you know, with failure, where we really run into trouble is we often fail to see failure and then we often fail to take risks in the first place. And so that kind of sets us up for struggles. We can think about sort of an activity bias that we're so busy with tasks that we don't take the time to step back and ask questions and think about, well, why are we doing this in the first place? Why shouldn't we kind of move in a different direction? We talked about strengths, that we get so fixated on the weaknesses, on the things that we're doing wrong, that you know we don't take the time to get better at the good stuff. And many times we're fixing irrelevant weaknesses instead of things that are actually critical to us moving forward. We mentioned specialization and variety earlier, where we think of it as an either or. 
Do I get really focused and deep or do I move across a whole bunch of areas? And instead, if we want to kind of improve our learning, we actually blend the two together, perhaps at different uh, timescales, doing kind of being specialized in the moment, changing activities over time. And so with each of these, there's a chance to, I think, like you said, if we understand them, then change our own behavior in a productive way. Because while the bad news in some ways is that, you know, we're supremely bad at learning, the good news is much of it is our own fault. And so, you know, the person we have the most control over is ourselves. And so we can address that. Well, I mean, you just said that we're going to talk about failure. So you must be clairvoyant because that's where I want to go next. (laughs) Excellent. The first thing you want us to do is to learn from failure. And I can tell you, this is a sticky wicket because in many workplaces, we fear that if we make a simple mistake, that it's going to lead to a scolding from our boss. And you mentioned this in your book, a lost opportunity to get a promotion or even getting fired, you know, depending upon, you know, how big a mistake it is. And so it conjures up like that game operation where, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Eh, you know, just one mistake and you're being sent to the principal's office and that feels shitty to most of us. Yep. And so we avoid it. And so your advice is you got to get more comfortable with it. But in reading your book, I was like, okay, how do I get more comfortable with it? Because when I get in the arena, I know I'm going to steer clear of failure. I don't like it. And so I know I need to learn from it. And I certainly have failures that are unintended that I learn from, but I'm not sort of happy when those occur. So give us the big picture of how you apply this, because I think this is really powerful. Yeah, it's a great point. And it's one that, I mean, it has struck me for many years. So before going into academia, I'd worked in industry, kind of most recently in venture capital. And so, you know, spend time around startups and fail fast, you know, mm-hmm. kind of ready, fire, aim, things like that are all kind of well-known expressions and yet, you know, your comments right there, I've yet to spend time with an organization across multiple levels where at least some people don't express some hesitancy of, I know we have the sticker that says fail fast, but I'm not comfortable. I'm not sure I can, you know, those sorts of things. And so first, I mean, you know, why failure? Well, we know we have to try new things if we're going to learn, right? That, you know, innovating means changing what we're doing. And when we try new things, not all of it's going to work. You know, I love the quote from Mark Zuckerberg where he says, in a world that's changing really quickly, the only strategy that's guaranteed to fail is not taking risks. So we've got to be willing to take risks. When we fail, it changes how we act. We see that something went wrong, so we can adapt, we can change, we can learn from it. And it also changes our motivation. When things go wrong, we maybe kind of kick it into gear, work harder as we put stuff together. So kind of the argument for failure is strong, but as you're saying, I don't really like to do it. And so I'd highlight kind of two challenges that I really see around failure that I think in understanding them help us kind of alter our actions a little bit. The first is around really the fear of failure. And so what's interesting about fear of failure is there's research saying that kind of we activate similar parts of the brain when we fail to physical pain. So kind of that gut punch we get, you know, really is, you know, that feeling mm-hmm. is similar to a gut punch almost. And so, you know, we have that, oh, um, or that electric that, shock I was just mentioning. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, as we go, you know, what's so fascinating, though, is what the research says is that we tend to overemphasize 
the negative outcomes. That it's not that anytime you fail, it's going to work out. It's that the brain is set up for bad to overpower good. And if we think about this kind of from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes sense that you know when bad occurs, we need to respond immediately. We need the body to activate and be ready to go. When good occurs, well, that means you know we don't have to rush the same way. We have a little bit more time to to take. But think about that kind of difference and what it means if you know we're trying to think about trying something new. Bad immediately swamps in, and it's tough for good to catch up. And so research will say, you know, hey, if you want somebody to take a 50-50 bet, in some scenarios, you might have to require a payout that's $200 if they're going to lose $100. Like, that's how, you know, strong we need for the good to be to overcome the bad. And so part of the story then, at least for this one, is recognizing that that's going to happen. Thinking then through the whole process not just the immediate bad, you know, kind of rush of emotion we're going to get, but what comes out the other side from it, right? If this goes wrong, what can I learn from it? How can I adapt? How can I move forward? The other technique that I find really helpful around this one is reframing. Oftentimes we say, well, if I try this, it can go wrong and I'm going to get in all this trouble. Also think about, though, well, if I don't try it, what's going to happen, right? And so it's a way to get a more balanced view so that we see, hey, standing still, you know, isn't viable in many situations, right? And so that first problem is really, right, the kind of being willing to overcome that initial, you know, kind of negative frame. The other real issue that we have with failure is that we do something and then kind of we fail to see what's really going on around us. And so we kind of try to deny that failure has occurred. Mm -hmm. We write it off of, oh, it wasn't my fault. It was somebody else. You know, we try to protect ourselves and our self-image that, uh, you know, well, it would have even been worse if I hadn't tried it, or we just don't go talk to that person anymore. And so with both of those, how do we get a more accurate view? Well, part of the story is that we need to think about how do we destigmatize failure, both for ourselves and to the extent that we're a leader for our teams? What that means to bring failure out into the open is setting the boundaries for what's acceptable, right? I mean, if you're running the nuclear control room, you know, then we don't <laughs> want people just turning dials or seeing patterns, right? I mean, that you know, it would be catastrophic, quite literally. Ditto if you're flying an airplane. In those scenarios, they're going to fail in simulators or in other environments, right? So in, in high assurance, most of us aren't in those kind of roles. And so as a leader, we have to draw, you know, kind of the sandbox. This is what we play in. And this is where we go with things. I love Tom Crosby as a CEO at Pal Sun Service, a kind of really interesting fast food company in uh, Tennessee and Virginia. And uh, he likes to say that, you know, if it's not illegal, immoral or unethical, you're allowed to make any mistake once. Just make sure the next mistake is something new. And so that's a great way to kind of frame it out for people and hopefully then change, you know, kind of how they approach things. So I love that example in, in reading the book. Um, you know, it's a, as you said, it's a different kind of a mindset. It's a reframe. So in the book, he described, he wanted to make a business decision. And I think it was, he wanted to get yep. into salads yep. and everyone around him was like, salad, schmalad, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's not going to work. And he went ahead and did it. And then, you know, here he is, the CEO of the company, and it failed miserably. And he did two things that I thought were just really remarkable, remarkable pivots along this line. And the first one was that he sort of said, you know, pull the salads. <laughs> we're not doing this yeah. anymore, right? 
And then he created that mantra that you just described, which was, hey, if I can fail, then everybody else can fail. And you just did something really brilliantly, which was to anticipate where I wanted to go, which is that this is a leadership podcast. And you give this fantastic example. Coincidentally, somebody that you've worked with and studied under, Amy Edmondson, yep. was our most recent podcast guest. Oh, that's great. By the way, the most successful we've ever had. In two weeks, she's already blown out the numbers. But in your book, you described research that she did that showed that teams of nurses who had better leaders, everyone listen to this, teams of nurses who had better leaders actually made more patient errors. That's a paradox, obviously, and I'm not telling the rest of the story, but it is a remarkable story from a leadership standpoint, and I'm hoping you'll tell it. Yeah, so I absolutely love it. So as you noted, I mean, Amy's fantastic, great researcher. And what I love about this story is it was some of her very early research that I think has a great twist as we think about leadership and then also a good twist as the researcher. So Amy, you had a very simple idea that, you know, going to go out and study nursing team leaders and their teams and that those you know, who had better leaders on kind of measures that we could all nod our heads at would have fewer errors. And so collects the data, runs the data, and it comes back and it says just the opposite. And this is one of those things that as a researcher, when you have a model in your head and as anybody with a model in your head and the data comes back and it's just the opposite, and, you know, many times, you know, we say, well, okay, go rerun it or go twist it, make it say what I want. Um, and that's not what she did at all, of course. She went back out, you know, to talk to the teams and to understand, you know, hey, how is this even possible? And as she did that, she saw, you know, something that, you know, in hindsight is obvious, but, you know, in nursing, as in both contexts, you know, errors are something that individuals have to report, right? So there's some types of errors of, you know, a patient dies or something that, you know, is very clear cut, but there's lots of other things of, you know, a nurse takes a patient the wrong medication, but goes running back and grabs it before the patient ever takes it, or misses changing a bandage, or you know, a meal or whatever it might be. And if nobody else sees it, then you don't have to report it. And so if you have a leader that uh, is just going to rip your head off anytime they find out something goes wrong, well, then quite naturally you sweep it under the rug, right? On the other hand, if you have that leader that's not saying, hey, you can do things as wrong as you want and I don't care, but rather, you know, we're going to be open to the discussion. It's safe to make mistakes here and then we're going to figure out how to fix it. Then you actually share the information. And so that kind of led very directly to her great work on psychological safety and this idea is, as a leader of making the environment safe for folks to take risks. And I think that's, you know, back to the Tom Crosby story, you know, what he was doing that was so fundamental in that environment of showing folks that, look, you can make mistakes and you have to pivot. I love the line from Bob Sutton, who talks about how we need to have strong views, strong opinions, weakly held. But this perspective of we need to think we know about how the world works. We're acting on that based on the information we have right now. But when new information comes, we're going to pivot. We're going to change. And as a leader, we make that okay for others to do it. It's not, you know, kind of in a political realm of flip-flopping. Instead, that's how we learn and how we adapt and then perform at a higher level. Brilliant. You just mentioned Bob Sutton. And one of my favorite chapters in your book stresses that learning requires us to ask questions and be extremely curious. And so I'm going to actually 
put everyone in the auditorium at University of Pennsylvania Wharton Business School and have you tell them the story of Cade Massey, who's obviously, where did he get his PhD? From uh, Chicago. From Chicago. So he's now a professor at Wharton. And it was his job to welcome the 900 students, the new incoming students at Wharton. And this is an absolutely fantastic story from a how do you actually learn. And the reason I mentioned Bob Sutton, by the way, was because he was hugely complimentary and said that you've written the best book on learning. And this story just stood out as being, I think, just a wonderful takeaway from this podcast. So the floor is yours. Yeah, so I absolutely love the story as well. When I heard it the first time, you know, kind of it, it jumped out at me. I had the good fortune of visiting at Wharton for a year. And so, and I'd known Kate before, fellow Texan, Longhorn, but uh, Kate had this responsibility to welcome folks. And so you can think about, you know, with that sort of welcome speech, what do you do? How do you impress upon them the kind of tremendous opportunity they have in front of them? How do you set the stage for them around that? And And what Cade did struck me as something kind of we would all benefit from. He didn't tell them about kind of, you know, amazing graduates of the program or even his own amazing accomplishments. He started to ask them questions and he asked them questions, not, you know, kind of that were things that they would have any hope of knowing, but that were incredibly complex, right? Of, you know, asking them to price out, you know, a financial derivative with all sorts of uh, complicating (laughs) factors, Mm -hmm. right? Asking them, you know, what would come out of a networking meeting that they might take in a distant city in an industry that they hadn't worked from before. And and at first, the answers are kind of tentative as people almost are embarrassed when they say, I don't know. And as he keeps asking these questions, they start to get it. They get that, you know, I don't know, turns out to be the right answer. And what he's trying to impress upon them is kind of this intellectual humility and intellectual curiosity that they're stepping into a new environment that they don't know everything. And the way they're going to really succeed is recognizing that and then working to fill in those gaps. And I think it has such a great lesson for us as we think about our own learning journeys that we come to think of it we have to know all of the answers. And I think this is kind of one of the great ironies of life that the more we learn about any topic, we tend to then come to appreciate that, you know, even if kind of we think about our percent of knowledge that we understand, there's like a numerator, what you know, there's a denominator, how much is out there, that as time passes, our numerator grows, but our understanding of how big the denominator is keeps expanding typically at an even faster rate. So we actually end up knowing less. And so one of the great joys in my life life as an expert now on many things is to be able to say, I don't know, because I realize that is a true statement. And so I think it's really important from a learning standpoint, we think, you know, when somebody asks something, we have to rush in there with the answer, we have to know it right away, we have to push it forward. And sometimes that's right. But oftentimes, we're better taking a step back, asking questions, making sure, hey, why are we doing this in the first place? How can we come at it in a different way? And with that flexibility, you know, I don't know, but I'll find out is a great way to actually get us to a better location. And to learn, interestingly enough, right? (laughs) Ultimately, you're going to find that answer. You know, coincidentally, we had Kim Powell on the podcast a few months ago, and her work on CEOs proved that curiosity is one of the qualities that distinguishes people from the C-suite that actually make it to become CEOs. 
CEO, and then your colleague and somebody else who's been on the podcast before, Harvard's Francesca Gino, you mentioned in the book is kind of like a just massively inquisitive, like a Columbo, asking people questions all the time. How does she do that? Yeah, so she's a lot of fun to work with. So she and I, we actually did some joint work with the uh, executive search firm Egon Zender, which their model around placing CEOs and figuring out success of CEOs, they had shown was around kind of potential and uh, potential around curiosity in particular, that curiosity was really the great catalyst. And so it was ironic that Fran and I, amongst a number of things we studied, were doing a study of them on curiosity while I got to watch her in action. You know, one of her favorite lines is, you know, can I ask a question? And you know, through the years, especially early on, I wasn't probably always as appreciative of that as I should have been. But, you know, what I've come to see is that peeling back of the onion, that willingness to ask what some might call a dumb question is incredibly important because if you really don't understand something, then you need to fill a gap. And what I found, and especially this is true with her, that, you know, that, you know, can I ask a question, you know, when she doesn't get something, it tends to be getting at a really important piece of the puzzle of whatever it is we might be looking at. And so, you know, what's great about the research on asking questions is it actually shows other people like us more when yep. we ask questions, yep. right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not that, you know, they're annoyed by how could you possibly ask me that? It's a compliment to them, right? We're treating them as an expert and uh, kind of, you know, giving them that, you know, recognition. Tell me what you know. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. You know, we love it when people put us in that position. And so asking questions, not only does it give us more knowledge, but it actually may make people like us more. And so it really is a winning strategy for learning. Let's talk about confirmation bias. You have in the book a study of 10 million Facebook users. And this is going to resonate with people because I think politically this really is obvious to us now. But a study of 10 million Facebook users found that when people look for information, they tend to confirm what they already know. How do you recommend all of us avoid the temptation to reconfirm what we already believe to be true? Something, as I mentioned, that seems to be pretty much epidemic in society today. Yeah, I mean, it is unfortunate, right? That all too often we live in echo chambers, right? We're going out and, you know, yep, there's some more information that supports what I knew and there's some more as we do it. I mean, there are a couple of points I'd make. One is, what's interesting is we tend to subject information to a different standard when we want to believe it versus when we don't want to believe it. So when we've decided something already and we look at it, you know, we might ask, well, can I believe this information? We kind of lower the standard, right? And so a lot of stuff can jump over that hurdle where if we want to falsify something, Something we might say, you know, must I believe it? And we raise it to that higher level. And again, if we assume that this is, you know, something that's in kind of a gray area, you know, we can kind of drive a truck through can I believe it versus must I believe it? What I'd suggest is we have to approach problems with much more of a falsification mindset. You know, kind of go back to, you know, wherever you were when you learned about the scientific method, you know, and so for many of us, that's a bunch younger. And the idea of the scientific method is, is you're trying to falsify a view. So once you have a perspective, it's not how can I go collect data to show how I'm right. It's how can I collect data to show how I'm wrong. Right. And so it might be that start with that simple question. Why might I be wrong? But not stopping there, looking for really specific reasons as you pick apart kind of all the ways that things can go wrong. And so, you know, unfortunately, 
many organizations I've worked with through the years, you know, they'll talk about data-driven decision-making. And unfortunately, data-driven decision-making, when partnered with confirmation bias, is just a way to try to bludgeon people who disagree with you to show that they're irrational because they won't listen to the data, but you've collected the wrong data or interpreted it the wrong way in the first place. And so instead, you know, that kind of, why might I be wrong? And then back to the willingness to accept that you could be wrong is incredibly powerful. So it's humility again, but I also wonder if there's a, <laughs> is there something wrong with us <laughs> that we always have to defend our positions and, you know, how do we get beyond that? Um, yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I'm not sure I'd say there's something wrong with us, but there is absolutely this kind of perspective that we want to maintain a positive self-view, right? We like being right and we struggle with being wrong. And I actually think that part of it is kind of changing the measure with which we evaluate ourselves, that it's not you know, kind of just looking at this right versus wrong, but appreciating the journey in some ways, very much the process. So if we obsess about the outcome, then it's tough to get out of that and find a winning strategy. If instead we can recognize that, you know, as we look at these things, we're learning, we're getting better, we're moving in a positive direction, we objectively can look and show that, you know, we could do more than we could do yesterday in whatever the field happens to be, even if we're certainly not at a point where we're doing everything perfectly, is at least one way kind of around the challenge. But don't we also like people who we sort of perceive them to be like in the know or like they know what they know? Don't we kind of respond to people like that as opposed to, you know, if I'm a leader and you work for me, Brad, yep. and I say, you know, this is what I think, but I'm not really sure or, or I'm really still investigating. At some point, doesn't that start to annoy you or lower your esteem of me because I'm not a little more secure in my convictions? So I want to dig out what you're talking about because I think it's very insightful. Yeah, and it's a fair point. I think that in the short term, you're right. We tend to like that decisive leader. I think that there's a recognition that if we're decisive about everything, then we're not giving careful enough attention to the important things. That I've yet to meet the leader or seen the leader profile who got every decision out there right. And so I think in some ways this takes us back to kind of that strong opinions weekly held. It's not that a leader should be wishy-washy when there's action to be taken, but we know, right, the great line, when the leader says, I think, the thinking stops. <laughs> and so we have to be really careful that, yes, people may look to us as a leader, but we want basically our company to function as a machine that all they do is you know follow the orders that I give them and unfortunately some leaders may do want that more realistically though we know the only way we're going to compete and succeed is to have people bring not only their hands to follow instructions but their heads to be thinking and increasingly their hearts to engage with the activities and so to do that then we have to open up that possibility that you know I may not know the answer right now that this is the reason you know this is what we're doing. We're sharing why we're doing it, but we're open to, as new information comes in, to adapting and adjusting on the fly. I love the way you articulated that. And I love that you mentioned the heart because I think it really boils down to if you're working for somebody who says to you, look, I've done this research. This is the strategy. This is the way we're going to go. 
But if we see evidence that we're going to go in a different direction, we're going to pivot. We're going to make a different move. And that's a very human thing. That's a very reasonable thing. And it puts me in a position of feeling comfort. Like I'm working with somebody who's not just going to take us into the trenches when the results aren't there to validate them. And that I can do that too. That I can say, this is the way we need to be going. But look, if I start to see signs that this isn't really working, we can retreat or we can go in a different direction. And I, I love that example you just gave because it creates a feeling of safety and it creates a feeling of, I want to help this person because this person is normal. This person is real, <laughs> you know? Yes. I think those you know lines like failing fast and you know taking the approach of ready, fire, aim, or I love Tom Peters, you know, whoever tries the most stuff wins. It's all great advice, but we have to recognize there's some real behavioral hurdles that get in the way. And so we have to fight those ourselves individually. And then as leaders, we have to set ourselves up for success as well, because those things don't really come naturally. We also had Tom Peters on, and he mentioned that quote, so it was fun to read that. Nice. He didn't mention it. He actually <laughs> quoted himself, but <laughs> yeah, but basically saying that the companies that are really succeeding are actually creating these little pilots. They're creating all sorts of testing, and let's go see how this actually plays out, not just to see if it's going to work, but to see if they can refine it and make it really great. And so often we think, oh, this is a great idea. Just go do it. And he's saying whoever does the most experimentation wins. And I think that's absolutely, you know, absolutely true. Yeah. And the thing I'd add to that, back to our earlier discussion around failure, you know, how do you make that work? Well, one way you do it that I've seen some organizations is they'll track their failure rate. And interestingly, they're not trying to get that to zero. The kind of perspective is, hey, if every experiment I try works, then I'm not pushing the boundaries enough. I'm not being innovative enough. And so thinking about, well, what is a reasonable number? Not because you're saying, hey, here's our one that we know is going to fail. Let's do the stupid thing to get to count, but rather, hey, we're not sure this is going to work, but if it does, it could be big. Let's get it out there. Let's see what happens and then adjust and move on. This is what Astro Teller's group is at Google, right? I mean, they're just trying all these wild ideas and seeing which ones work. And if you can get something really remarkable out of that, then all of the work was worth it. So really good. Transitioning, another part of your book that I think everyone's going to find interesting is that you believe that we could learn more by working less. And you believe that most of us tend to, you know, always, you know, busy, busy, busy. We're always, we feel that we need to be seen as being busy and having all these activities that we need to tend to, and that that effectively interferes with our thinking and processing and ability to make creative leaps. So tell us what you found. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, what I found interesting in some way, this is back to the me search challenge of, you know, getting home and I didn't do anything all day is, you know, we have this kind of action bias. We feel like we need to always be on. And that really gets in the way of our learning. And often it gets in the way of our performance. Because what the research shows is reflection and recharging are both incredibly important. We did uh, some work with a company that we did a field experiment with them, a field intervention. We took one of their learning programs, a development program to basically train customer service agents. And it was a six-week program. We took two weeks in the middle. We kind of randomly assigned you know cohorts to different groups and one just had the same training program as ever the other got 15 minutes at the end of the day and with that 15 minutes they were just asked 
to write about two things they had learned that day. So the other group actually got 15 minutes more training, but that reflection group did that for two weeks. Into the six weeks, they take an exam to qualify for the job. They're provisional employees until that point. And the group that uh, did the reflection condition scored about 25% better on the exam. Their first month on the job, they performed about 10% better in customer satisfaction. We've kind of repeated this in a number of other contexts, and we see it again and again, this kind of you know, almost irony of you know stopping, thinking about what you're doing, not getting any work done, actually helps you get more done going forward. And kind of research by others has shown, for example, neuroscience research has shown that thinking and doing can activate different parts of the brain. Um, so it looks like we actually learn more kind of when we put those together. In addition, you know, kind of other research has shown when we're constantly acting and doing things, that kind of our ability to perform at high levels falls off pretty quickly. You know, sleep is kind of a classic example that when we don't get enough sleep, we tend to underestimate how much sleep we think we need and most of us need more. But that when we come to work tired, and if we're not careful, it can be almost the same as you know, degrading our decisions the way coming to work after having a couple of drinks would degrade our decisions. And so what kind of this work shows is, you know, the great encouragement that it turns out we really can work smarter, not harder, that we really can slow ourselves down to in some ways speed ourselves up in the long run, which you know is kind of one of the great joys to me of seeing that because it's hard to fight. We want to be doing stuff, but pulling back has uh, has some real merit. I got into an unusual habit years ago and in fact did it with your book. So as I was reading your book, I'm writing in it all the pages. And then I went back and typed up the notes from everything that I had written. So I basically have five or six typewritten pages of your book that I will now have forever. So I don't have to reread your book to remember some of the things, but I glean the things that are most important. But the process of reading the book, writing the notes, and then typing them up, by the time I get done, I feel like I really fully digested this book. And so, yeah, it's like ridiculously time consuming and I've given up, you know, Saturdays to do some of these. But what it allowed me to do is to internalize information just by thinking about it a little bit more than I would have if I had just read the book and put it back up in the library. So I think this is a really valid point. I, I want to ask not to get into your religious beliefs, but I'm interested in do you meditate? Do you advocate for, you know, personal time around that? I'm just curious as to how that line of thinking is influencing you and learning. Yeah, so I don't meditate kind of formally. I definitely take time to reflect. Um, so, you know, which I guess may be one and the same depending on how you look at it. But uh, kind of guided reflection for me tends to be thinking about an individual day, thinking about individual projects, kind of writing some notes to myself and, uh, and kind of going at it that way, trying to be formal, similar to like you were saying, taking some notes, handwritten in a journal often, and then other times kind of typing up if, I, if I'm trying to be kind of project focused in, in what I'm doing. You know, again, like most things, if one were to do it for eight hours a day for long stretches of time, you know, then certainly hard to make an argument that it's going to improve your productivity. Right. 
But taking small snippets whenever you can, even something as simple, we did some research looking at the morning commutes. This was with uh, Francesca and uh, and a couple of other colleagues that on the drive-in or the train-in or the bike-in, you know, spending just two minutes on, you know, what are you going to do that day? How can you kind of structure your day out? Kind of led people to report, you know, improvement in performance as well as improved satisfaction, both with the job and with the commute. And so I think, you know, what is so cool is that really small snippets of time can have a big impact. Yeah, I love that. And know that, you know, that it's sort of freeing. You know, you plan and then you execute. You sort of have a vision for your day rather than letting your day hit you. And you can do that in a very short period of time, right? And just sit yeah. through and just think, okay, what do I want to do and where do I want to go? And I think the big picture kind of manifests itself. So very good. Brad, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition we call the Heartbeat Round. So we can all have greater insight into your personal philosophies and life influences. I'd like to ask you a few more questions, but these all require a quick, instinctive and brief answer. So your goal after hearing each question is to give me your answer in a heartbeat. How's that? All right. Sounds great. Okay, cool. First, one subject above all others that you believe listeners would be wise to study today. Go with computer programming. Not to learn necessarily a particular language, although this day and age, maybe Python is a, a decent place to start, but more to learn a way of logical structure and thinking. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? The Economist. I like to kind of see what's going on around the world and in different industries. The quality you most admire in other people? Intellectual humility, a willingness to be wrong and to respond to others when they present a good argument, but also to push back when yours is uh, the strongest argument. Noting that not only did you go to Harvard, where I mentioned earlier you earned an MBA and a PhD, your brother went to Harvard. And so tell us one thing your parents taught you while growing up, a philosophy or a belief that gave you the confidence that you could go there. Um, you know, talking to my mom, she might say, you know, trust your mother, which was a favorite uh, family <laughs> aphorism. Uh, and she always believed in us, certainly helped. But probably from both parents, you know, good enough isn't good enough. And so not settling, but really pushing beyond to make sure that what you're doing was truly excellent. Was that especially demanding? I know them being my uh, heartbeat question <laughs> exactly. here, but I'm curious. No, it wasn't. In my context, in this, a little bit of this comes out in the book. It was a recognition that could do work that was good enough to meet a standard and, you know, kind of highlighting that, hey, you know, let's take a, a test. Getting a, a 90 so you get an A, you know, yes, you get the A, but the point here is to learn and to really push. And so was that sufficient? So I, I wouldn't kind of call kind of in what is now we think of as a tiger mom in that sense, but just basically to be your best. And so, you know, that requires more, I guess. Next one. The behavior that derails the most leadership careers. I go with overconfidence, kind of this belief that you know best and your experience is right and an unwillingness to think about that you might be wrong. Your go-to activity when you're seeking rejuvenation. Mm, as a family, we love to go uh, to the mountains. And since in your book you reveal that you love baseball, what Major League Baseball manager of any era do you believe is the best overall leader? I don't know if I can pick one, but Terry Francona is a favorite. Uh, just you know, his ability to deal with Boston and to uh, have such success there, but also to never stop learning, right, as he moved on. So the Indians had to manage in a very different way in the role there, but kind of this ongoing evolution change has been fun to watch. Great. One quote that captures your life philosophy. 
I mean, I love the line I use in the book from Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella that ultimately the learn it all will always do better than the know it all. A book that profoundly changed your life. First time I went to India to do research, it's from my first trip to India, the individual who was hosting me gave me the book, Everybody Loves a Good Drought by uh, P. Sanath. And uh, it's a book that kind of tells the story of unintended consequences in uh, kind of rural India of changes in policies, some meant to help, some not meant to help, and uh, the obstacles that folks uh, ended up facing. And so it kind of highlighted an opportunity to help others, but also just the complexity of systemic change. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Trying to learn French. Oh, wonderful. The best money you've ever spent. Uh, I would go with fajita dinner at uh, the Hyatt Austin about 25 years ago, which was uh, my first date with my now wife. Oh, congratulations. That's great. One person alive today you'd most like to meet? I think I might go with Bill James, uh, kind of the father of statistical analysis in baseball. I've, I've enjoyed his book, and he's had such a profound impact on the field. So we'd just love to hear his stories about the learning process and the change process. And finally, one big lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. I'm going to go with the power of I don't know, but I'll find out as a way to move forward. Great. Thank you so very much. These are wonderful answers. Very thoughtful. I love your book recommendation. And before we finish, I have saved one last question for you. And it's really more about turning over the floor to you. That's our tradition. And giving you an opportunity to share any final thoughts. And so I guess I'll sort of help frame it, but really it's a blank slate for you. What's something that we haven't surfaced in the discussion that could really help our audience become magnificent learners? Yeah, I mean, I I think I kind of tie together a couple of threads you know that uh, as I think about learning and it, it's a piece of advice my now departed mentor Dave Upton gave me many years ago that came to him for a meeting we had 30 minutes and you know I had probably 90 minutes of material but you know kind of an operations mind I knew how to solve that problem I would just talk three times as fast uh, and so, you know, we went uh, kind of 10 minutes into the meeting, I'm flying through things, feeling like I'm checking off the boxes, and he reached over and put a hand on my shoulder to get me to pause, and I kind of took a rear breath and looked at him, and uh, Dave said to me, Brad, don't avoid thinking by being busy. And so, you know, I think the thought I would love to leave folks with around learning is just that, right? Don't avoid thinking by being busy, that we all have so much going on. There's always things that are piling on. But what we see with the research, what I see in practice in the organizations and individuals I work with, what I try to highlight in the book is that if we can step back, if we can look at some of those challenges, what we find is that when we actually think and don't just run at stuff constantly, then we have a chance to improve our performance both in the short run and in the long run, hopefully being a little bit happier in the whole process. Awesome. Brad, on behalf of my audience and me especially, thank you so very much. This has been not just delightful, but incredibly insightful. And I know you're a busy guy. We wish you great success with your book. And thank you again for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk today. Thank you, Brad. As we close, I want to thank you, my listeners. As without you, there would be no podcast at all. And our success, of course, is largely a result of your direct support in recommending us to your friends. And for that, I am extremely grateful. And if you don't mind, I'd like to ring the plug bell here and mention that my book, Lead from the Heart, just succeeded having 250 online Amazon reviews. Its average rating is now 4.9 out of 5. And I hope very much that you'll one day read it if you haven't already done so. It's truly the foundation for everything that we do here. 
And if you happen to be planning a meeting anywhere in the world, I'd love to come and be your speaker. In the next few weeks, I'm going to be in Maine, Dallas, Texas, California, London, and it would be fun to add your town to the list and more specifically to be with you and your company. As always, I want to thank my wonderful supporting team, including dear friends Susan DeRoche and Ken Boynton, in addition to my webmaster Randy Yant, an incredible sound engineer and producer Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with the same final thought. When you leave from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley, signing off for now. Thank you.